Hi everyone, welcome to TG Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You know, one of the things that I've been reading a lot about lately because of my administrative role is the topic of digital transformation in higher education. And, and we're gonna talk about what that term means in just a moment with our guests. But of course, the the topic of digital transformation transformation has been part of this podcast series before. We've had guests on that have talked about how institutions are using text messages and automated text message systems to engage current students to promote academic success. And today we're gonna to be talking about a similar type of concept, but at probably a different point in a student's life cycle, namely the admissions process. Artis Kadu is a computer science engineer and also the CEO and founder of Element 451, which is a student engagement platform used in collegiate recruiting. The Element 451 platform specializes in using AI-driven user design as part of its engagement tactics. Artis, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Hey, Scott. It's great being here. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So I want to start uh, talking in broader terms um, to really kind of focus in on what the phrase um, digital transformation means and how it relates to higher education and how AI is a part of that. You're an expert in this field. And so can you sort of help listeners understand what digital transformation means for higher education and even potentially, you know, K-12 education? So um, digital transformation really means taking a lot of processes that have naturally uh, traditionally been done offline or have been done manually and rethinking how those processes can now fit into a digital world that being through, um, you know, through the cloud or being through uh, different systems that can automate things a lot better. Um, we can look at that and a very simple example of it is um, a process that uh, is in the application. You submitted a, a paper application back in the day and somebody actually read through that application. They make notes on it. They marked it. They had a folder. They moved it around. They sent it to different departments. Well, a digital transformation on that area can be now taking that application online, um, you know, moving that data through a different through a system that somebody can look at it digitally, they can make digital notes, and then you can kind of pass it around, um, you know, in a digital, uh, digital way without that data touching any paper at all, or touching um, any uh, person's um, kind of local computer, so to speak. And when we're talking about, um, again, I want to stay general just to sort of define terms at this stage. Artificial intelligence plays a role in effective digital transformation, but from your perspective, how would you provide, you know, a, a consumable definition of what artificial intelligence is and maybe some examples of how that might be used um, in, in various applications in higher ed? Sure. So one of the things around digital transformation is we have, you know, we, we're now allowed because of these digital systems to collect a lot of data. We collect a lot of data and sometimes we don't know what to do with it. Um, we also um, have, you know, no idea what's good data, bad data. Um, and we also have the ability to automate a lot of things because, 
um, when we have things digitally, we can write, you know, software, we can write scripts, we can write automations in order to get those things, uh, those processes to, um, to kind of go over that, those, that piece of data and, uh, perform the same actions over and over and over again. Um, something that a human is really bad at, right. And the computers are really, really good at doing the same thing over and over and over again. So, that's the first part of it that the automation part, right? So then we went, when we think about it, it's like, well, okay, uh, computers are doing this thing really, really well. They're, they're doing the same thing over and over and we can write scripts for that. But what happens if there is um, a variability in that data, right? What happens if, um, you know, this, you have different components that or different, uh, uh, the same data, but now students are coming from from a different state, or their test scores are a little bit different. Well, we we have we can build all those rules manually into the system. We can say, okay, if they're between this range and that range, then admit them. Or if they're between this range and that, or from this state, then give them this scholarship. If they're from that state, give them this scholarship. So you can build all those rules manually for the automation. Um, however, that is not sustainable because the systems now you are introducing, you can introduce new data and you can introduce new uh, components on that data that, is, that the, the rules have not seen before. So what ends up happening in that, in that case, it's your go back to your default. Um, where AI becomes really interesting and, and kind of the precursor to that, what we call um, kind of machine learning, so to speak, is um, we, I want to be clear because machine learning AI get used interchangeably quite a bit, but machine learning is really um, the process of uh, a computer coming up with an algorithm that is looking at a set of data, is looking at a, um, a whole bunch of um, instances of that particular data and saying, okay, I understand what the vari variability is between this data and given some kind of an input, and that input can be a new type of input, I'm going to predict what the output should be based on historical uh, data. So it's just like us humans doing that. We do that naturally, right? So when we're kids, we're, we're kind of feeling our environment and we understand that, um, you know, you know how kids basically laugh every time they do peekaboo. Well, they're just trying to figure that out, right? They're trying to figure out their environment. They're trying to, they find it really amusing that, you know, you're, you're there one second and you're not there. So essentially that's what computers are trying to do. Like they're testing things out uh, based on the inputs that you're giving them and then they're they're testing it out and saying okay is this output the right what i'm supposed to be getting and then they're tweaking their assumptions um, and trying to get as close to that output as possible right so that's what models are that's what in a machine learning like we try to build models just like humans build models of their environment right they're they're um, physical models or in, in our heads, w machines are trying to build models to approximate given an, an input, what that output is actually going to be. And then now we can feed it any, not any type of input, any uh, number in that input, and it's going to try to predict as close as possible. So that is the basis of what machine learning is. And that's the basis of AI. Um, we can get more sophisticated now with AI because those um, algorithms can get a lot more sophisticated. Now we can now say, well, okay, um, what happens if we, um, you know, 
if we don't know what the output is going to be, right? Like we don't we don't have any test data for that output. Mm-hmm. How is that going to work? Well, then you go a little bit further along, and you can say, okay, that's uh, you need different types of algorithm, different type of mathematics to figure out when the output is a little bit more, um, you know, ambiguous. Like how do we define and how do we get to that point? Other things that you can think about is well, okay, maybe the digital like numbers are really easy to to kind of build a model around but how do you build a model around text or how do you build a model around images or how do you build a model around video so all of those things um, are different versions of machine learning so to speak it's it's you know scientists or computer scientists and uh, AI engineers and data scientists that's what they do they try to figure out you know, what are those algorithms to best predict what the outcome is going to be? So I, I feel like I just took a graduate class in this topic. That's <laughs> a great explanation. Let me, let me ask some kind of closed-ended questions just so I can hone in on a couple things. So let's assume, uh, in fact, we just had uh, two podcasts ago. We had a teacher, Latoya Blackshear, um, from um, a, a school system in Mississippi that collects data on teacher effectiveness and then uses that to help teachers get better. That is using data, but am I correct in saying that just the way I described that, that that's not really using AI, that's using a dashboard and then a human coming in and making an interpretation of how that data could be most meaningful in doing interventions if necessary. Do you agree with that conclusion? Well, no, because um, you can certainly look at descriptive data and you can say, okay, you have certain metrics and you're like, okay, they're doing this. This is the average of how those teachers do. But now the way that you do a, you know, you do an AI component on that or the way that you use AI in that situation, mm-hmm. you have all this stu- or teacher data and now somebody goes in and identifies who are the most effective teachers in that group. And they say, okay, we want our teachers, the most effective teacher, we're going to label them. We're going to score all of these teachers' outcomes, all of this data that we're inputting in. We're going to score that teacher and say, they're, let's say, 1 to 10, right? Mm-hmm. And now the model, the machine understands, given that this is the uh, all the actions that this teacher has done, right? They, they write three... Um, they, they handle their students this way. They have this many students. They, uh, they spend this much time with each student. Given this inputs, they figure out, okay, I'm going to score this uh, teacher uh, from a 1 to 10. So we are defining what is the output. Mm-hmm. And now we can tell machines to learn. It's like, okay, based on this inputs, um, we're going to figure out uh, who, who, is, um, who the best teacher is. But we gave you a, a data set to understand this is what we think is the best teacher, like what the best teacher looks like. These are the things that we feel like the best teacher does. Now, when they go back and they say, okay, um, let's now work with a new teacher that's coming into the system, they can tell them exactly like, hey, we have found out that the best teachers do these things really well. And now they can tweak the learning or the instruction or the curriculum to tell those teachers do more of this, do less of this. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the 
you know, the, the, the power of the, M, the AI, right? Yeah. Um, I can give you another example, which is really interesting, but um, maybe not outside of education, but if, it, it's very, very um, easy to understand because um, if you think about, you go to a radiologist, right? And they take, a, uh, they take a, an x-ray and a lot of those x-rays, let's say, um, we're, you're, they're looking for, for, for cancer, they're looking for, for some kind of um, you know, image that, that shows some kind of a mass in, in, in that x-ray. Mm -hmm. Now, a doctor, because of their, they've seen a lot of these before, they can look at that and they can kind of spot where there is uh, something abnormal on that image. And then they can diagnose that and say, okay, this is, this is, you know, cancer here. This is a mass. This is not a mass. Now that doctor maybe has seen a few thousand images, right? So they're basing their understanding on, on what that is mm -hmm. based on a few thousand images. Now, when, when that doctor has evaluated all those and they have classified a few thousand, they've said, okay, this is, you know, cancer, this is not. And then now we actually know we can go back and say, okay, let's just open it up to a thousand doctors. How about a million doctors, right? So now the mass of a million doctors, you have hundred, you know, millions and millions of images that they have seen. You put that into the model and now the machine understands that, okay, um, I know exactly I can be so much better. I can have the power of a thousand doctors into, into this, this machine rather than having the opinion of one doctor, mm -hmm. right? When you go in and you say, Hey, give me a second opinion. Well, really that second opinion is, okay, that person has seen different data and they have a different experience. So they might, get, they might see something that I, I didn't see. But the machines don't have a limit on how much data you can give them to see. So it bec they become more accurate in, in kind of how they can predict. Sure. Could you briefly describe what the admissions funnel is and how that is important to college recruiting? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been dealing with the admissions funnel now for a long time. Um, we, we, we've kind of transitioned from the admissions funnel a little bit, but I'll talk about the funnel exactly. Uh, when we talk about a student um, being accepted and kind of enrolling in an institution, there are certain steps that they have to go through. Um, and both of the, and all those steps have to do with uh, where they are in that process, right? Uh, we talk about a prospect. It's a student who uh, might know or might not know about the school and have raised their hand to, uh, to say, okay, I'm interested. I want to learn a little bit more. So that's a prospective student. Before that, we call them suspects or, um, you know, suspects, right? Because we don't know who they are yet or unknowns or stealth uh, students. Um, after they become a prospect, we try to get them to apply to the school, depending if they are available, if they are ready for that decision yet. So we try them to get to apply. Once they start an application, they're called an applicant, right? So they start an application. This is a, a bigger commitment for them. Um, once they have this, you know, completed the application, then that application goes through a review process. Uh, during that process, the student can then get admitted to the school and they're called now admitted student or they can denied and then 
their journey or their funnel stops there for that student, right? But admitted students um, still need to be engaged and need to be convinced now to actually attend school and, and put deposit down or commit to become to coming to that school because they probably have applied to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten schools. Um, and then they might be get into uh, you know half of those or three or four. So now they have to decide which one to go through, and and we call those um, so we call those admitted students. But then once they deposit, once they make that commitment, um, some different schools have different ways of committing that student. Uh, we call them deposits. And then even after depositing, that student might still say, you know what, I'm not coming to you in the fall because, um, I, you know, the pattern is that a lot of schools are deposit, a lot of students might be depositing to different schools because they don't, they still don't know where they want to go yet, right? So they're like, I don't want to lose my spot. I want to hold my spot, so I'm depositing. So as it comes, uh, you know, so those deposited students need to be converted to enrolled. And that enrollment actually happens when that student shows up to class that first day of class. Uh, some schools call it enrolled, matriculated, um, but others call it different, you know, committed, you know, between enrolled and matriculated. So the student has to go through all these different steps, you know, going through all these different processes. And that's what we call the enrollment funnels, right? During each step, you lose more and more of those students. So it looks like a funnel, right? Just like a marketing, that's more of a marketing term when you think right. about client acquisition or, or, you know, customer acquisition. It's the same thing here. They're going through that process. Yeah. And so, for example, at, at my university, Ohio University, we consider a student uh, committed uh, when they pay a housing deposit so that they can get in line to select their residence hall room. Um, and things like that are examples of some of the things you're talking about. So when when I'm thinking about this as a dean, um, I know that at, at approximately this time of the year, so in, in early September, we start recruiting for the next academic year. And so our funnel starts with applicants, or even before that, we have prospects that may become applicants that we're trying to get them to apply to Ohio University and the Scripps College. And as you said, that number, Eventually, as the fall goes on, the number of applicants will grow to a large number, and then we admit some of those, and so it shrinks it a little bit, and so on and so forth. I feel like a lot of what we do is just trying to encourage a student in a generic way to go to the next step. So when I know that a student exists as an applicant, I send them a very cordial letter that is the same student, the same letter every other student gets that says, welcome to the Scripps College. We you know, hope that you will um, apply to the college and we hope that you will pay your housing. To, you know, they get, they get <laughs> reinforcement messages throughout that. And so, you know, we're not really tailoring those messages. I mean, we do tailor many of our messages, but, but we're not using a system to do that. If you introduced the concept of AI into this process, how might that start to look different for a dean like myself or an entire university? So if we go back to trying to predict an outcome based on certain inputs, now you are trying to um, affect an outcome as well, because you know that um, if you are uh, communicating to that student in a certain way, you're going to get different outputs. Um, in this case, the way that we think about it is, and this is an old, um, like this is marketing 101, right? It's all about um, how can I, how much do I know about my, my consumer? How do, much do I know about that student? And how can I 
better connect with that student so they can trust me and and then they that message about my school showcasing the values that they get and so on and so forth um, become uh, much resonate much more. So we need to understand who they are, what what they want, and what they care about. And in order to do that, we can look at you know data around that student um, from their kind of demographic data because we can derive some intent based on that, right? We can say if they care, you know, if they, if they don't, um, if they can't pay for their education, then we can give them a scholarship that they're going to care about that. Um, however, most of the uh, things that we understand at top of the funnel or even uh, further along about their intent is their actions. What are they doing and how can we see what they're doing and, and predict what they what they care about. So one of the things that um, we, you know, we at Element care a lot about is behavioral data and thinking about um, what what is that student doing? Are they visiting the website? Are they opening your communications? Are they um, are they chatting with you back? Are they um, are they sending you text messages? Um, how often do they uh, go to your website? Which pages do they visit in your website? So all of these different signals can tell you a lot about, you know, what that student's intent is. And based on millions and billions of interactions that we have in our system and, and kind of having that history of students who did this are more likely to, um, to apply, then we can define and, and, and bubble up the students that you should be communicating, right? Because you probably don't have all the time in the world to communicate to that student in a personalized way, right? Because you need to know who they are. You need to take the time to understand and and target the messaging to them. Um, So, you know, you have systems that can bubble up those students who you should be talking to, who are the t- should be at the top of your list because they're more likely to move to that next stage, right? Or they fit better the profile of, of person that you want in your institution, right? So that's the way we think about AI in that area. But the personalization is super, super important. It's marketing 101. Um, it's, it's true now more than ever, right? Where personalization really matters. Nobody has the time anymore to um, to to kind of spend time with with brands that they're like, well, they don't know me, so why should I spend time with you? Like my attention is smaller and smaller and smaller. Like the attention span is smaller. The time, and we're getting bombarded with with so much, uh, so many things that require our attention. So the things that break through are those things that relate better to us, that we feel like they know us and and trust us. And that's been you know the um, the basis for for marketing, and that's how it's evolving. Relevance is becoming more and more important now to break through uh, because we are. Um, inundated. We're in a sea of digital um, distractions, right? So, yeah, absolutely. And and it's really interesting because I feel like one of the things that we're trying to do, um, at least in my college, is that we are trying to gather 
more tactical information about individual students. So we have a program called Scripts First, which basically incentivizes students in a high school setting to do things related to communication, maybe be on their school newspaper, uh, be a part of the school media team, uh, be, be in a play even. Um, and they um, accrue points. And the more points they accrue, they get different types of rewards from us. Like it might be OU script swag. Eventually they could even get a one-time $500 scholarship. And so the point I'm making is that I feel like one of the things we're trying to do is to gather more and more information so we can be more precise with understanding who our students are. What you're describing though is the next step, which is to figure out how to build that into a model that gives us better ways to act with individual students. And I think that's just really fascinating. Correct. Yeah, exactly. So now you can start thinking about it and you can um, build content into the system to understand better um, who, that, who that student is, what motivates them, like what kind of action you know, what kind of email should you send them or what kind of should you send them an email or a text message? When should you send that text message to them a day or at night um, based on their behavior, right? Or based on other students that they were, you know, that you have it. So, so that's kind of the understanding that we're trying to do and, and use the AI to give you a um, uh, bubble those, those insights up, right? So not necessarily do the stuff for you but give you the insights to to you know make your chances of connecting with that student right. a lot better so as as human beings right now we live in a digital digital world and we don't know this but we're confronted with algorithms on almost an hourly basis so every time you open facebook every time you go to google etc cetera, etc cetera, you are interacting with an algorithm you just don't know it. it's behind the scenes one of the criticisms of such algorithms is that there can be um, hidden implicit biases within those. Can you talk about that general criticism of algorithms and then maybe turn your attention to ways in which algorithms can be, as you said, you know, remodeled to help, you know, in, in help students from diverse backgrounds have a fairer chance in a world that, you know, is driven by these algorithms? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned social media. And when you think about algorithms, algorithms are meant like what we talked about to optimize for something, right, to basically get you get you a prediction that's closer to the ideal. So you give them some inputs, and it's going to say, okay, this is, this is the outcome. But now I want to affect that uh, that outcome. So in social media, attention and you sticking around and viewing and interacting with those posts is what they want. So they're going to give you content that piques your interest or, you know, gets you fired up so you can leave comments and interactions. And of course, those are things that as humans, now we know algorithms are very good at kind of pushing our red buttons, right? It's like either if you're the left or right, you know, whatever kind of content, like algorithms get really good at it because we're so predictable uh, machines, so to speak. Like we're, we're very predictable from, from, from my perspective. So machines learn that really, really quickly, what, what moves and motivates us. Now, when we think about how in admissions and enrollment, how uh, machine learning and, and AI has been used in the past, it all comes down to the inputs, right? Um, we have traditionally used inputs that are very uh, demographic-based, things like 
what what zip codes are you coming from, right? Uh, what kind of household income do you have? Um, you know, what states and so on. So so all of these inputs that are that are being fed into the machine, they're they're basically enforcing. They're say, you're saying that okay, if students coming from the zip codes or from these high schools, I'm going to admit them because in the past. Um, I have, they have been enrolled at higher levels, right? So um, what, what you're enforcing now is a bias. And you're saying that I'm going to pick more of the same students. But when you look at the, the variables that you're putting in, you have no ability to specify, okay, if, if you're bringing students from the same zip code on the same high schools and, and you want to shape a class, then you're going to bring more of the same students in. So people who are not from those zip codes, um, then they have no chance of getting in, right? So now uh, you're like, we have schools who are need blind, for example, right? And, and essentially what that means is like, well, we're not going to look at your financials, right? It's like, we, we don't care how much your parents make. Um, we're going to evaluate you just on your academics, which is great. Um, but if you're feeding that data to the machine, the machine is going to try to find the fastest way to get to an optimized output and say, okay, these students are going to be better for you because you've had a lot of these students before. So diversity then gets lost completely because many over many, many years, you're going to get more of the same. And if all you're getting is students from that affluent zip code and those affluent high schools, then that's all the machines are going to tell you. So that's where the bias comes in. It's in the data that you're feeding the machines, right? What type of data are you feeding it? How are you, how are you doing that? And, and we've been very non-sophisticated in that, right? It's um, zip code. We know that zip code predicts how affluent you are. So why the hell are we using zip code to, to identify, to feed it into this? Like, we know that we're going to, like, people, you know, folks are, are kind of grouped together by zip code and we know um, how that's affected. So that's by its nature, using that, it's a bias, a biasing, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I feel like, you know, the, the first place to understand where bias is introduced is by the data that we feed our machines. Right, right. And, and, and then if, if as an administrator, I wanted to say, okay, I want to optimize output so that I can build my class, but I also want to shape that output so that I have students who will succeed but are from different zip codes and represent greater levels of diversity. That's the place where the human can come in and change the algorithm, right? That's right. So, um, but we, we have a, a different kind of view on, on it, right? So if you're going to change and shape your class, um, we feel that the data that you feed the algorithm is, is going to need to change as well. But if you don't, if you're not collecting that data, then it becomes really hard for you to, um, to change that. So our, our perspective is rather than looking at students uh, and looking at demographic data or data that tells you, um, you know, how many siblings they have and so on and so forth we look at behavioral data to predict things better. So behavioral data is much more predictive than demographic data. You can say, great, 
this student from the zip code is going to come here and I ha they have a, a 60% chance of applying um, and a 90% chance of getting admitted. But that doesn't tell you at the individual level if that student is on track to do that because it's all about behavior. So if that student hasn't opened any of your communications, like we know right away that that student is, is, is a, we, we kind of put these fancy names on it, like a lurker, a dormant, um, you know, a fan. So, so it can become a lot easier, more accessible uh, for, for folks to understand um, kind of their engagement levels. But we think that behavior is, is a bigger, bigger predictor on, on that. And you can see it when um, you are uh, kind of behavior has been such a big predictor that, uh, I mean, one of the things that gets used quite a bit around machine learning um, and AI being a little bit more intrusive is is the the, the famous um, uh, the famous dad uh, who went to Walmart and you know they gave him recommendations for for diapers, right? And it's like, well, wait a minute, like well, why are you giving me recommendations to buy diapers? And he didn't realize that his daughter was was pregnant. Um, and you know they're using the same account to or the same kind of reward system to to go there. So that's one of the ways that <laughs> kind of machine learning can bubble those things up, right? But that's that that's the um, uh, the example that gets used all the time to say no, 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 we can go too far with this, and we can you know we can kind of bias things a lot more. So if if I'm using AI principles to, you know, go th to bring students through the funnel and using behavioral data that would be more predictive that they will go through that funnel in an efficient way. In theory, at least, I'm going to end up with a good match between the students that are, you know, developing behavioral passionate indicators of being part of my program and then who eventually enroll in my program. Do, do you think that if this is done well, that the end result is that a student class will be more likely to be a quote unquote good fit with the program. I mean, is there, does this help create less of a chance that students will come to my, my college and then figure out, Oh, this wasn't for me. Um, so that data, I mean, you, what's, I mean, what is the major, what is the most popular major out there today? Uh, in general, um, yes, uh, psychology or biology. Um, no, it's actually undecided. Oh, right, good, yeah, good call. <laughs> I I did know that. Yes. So undecided is you know no the students who are coming in they they have no idea what they want to do or if they're going to be a good fit for it. Um, they're coming in and they're getting all the support and they're going through that program. But most of schools they don't really care about their success, like how successful that student is going to be. And very, 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 very few schools are actually putting that as part of their requirements in terms of their admissions um, uh, criteria. So they're evaluating based on test scores, they're evaluating based on GPA. 
but it still doesn't mean that that, per, that student is going to be successful, right? Because they're not bringing that data back all the way back and saying, hey, you have to have these things in order to be successful. So they're optimizing for, is that student actually, like, if they pass all of these hurdles that we put in front of them, like if they pass the GPA hurdle, if they pass the, um, the test hurdle uh, or the essay, like, is that student actually going to enroll or not? And that's all they care about. And and of course, I mean, we we have to be very realistic in, in how we're thinking about this. And it doesn't mean that it's it's bad or good, but it's you know it. We don't want to fool ourselves to say like we take all of this like their success into account um, all the way down the road because we have a, a very little to do with their success after they get enrolled, right? Right. Right. So. Our job to get that student to enroll and to to kind of form a relationship is to say, hey, how how is that person going to uh, react throughout that funnel and how can I move them more efficiently through that funnel? And that's where all of the behavioral components come in. Um, Now, is that person going to be successful or not? To date, test scores have actually um, not been a good indicator for that. When everybody went test optional two years ago, there's multiple studies that have been done looking at students who got admitted based with on their test scores, a student who got admitted just without test scores. There's different cohorts. And they're kind of going, it's been mostly done at the graduate level because they're about two years, right? So those cohorts now are getting out and the graduation rates and their scores and their, their kind of their GPAs the variance there is so tiny that it's statistically insignificant. Right, right. So then we have had this assumption that test scores were a great predictor of outcome. We removed them, and now we find out that they actually had absolutely no effect. Now, I understand that over the years we're going to have larger studies, but from the smaller studies that have been done, this is actually... Um, very telling that assumptions that we have right now on what's a good fit student, what is a good success, like what a good successful student looks like that's going to be successful in our class, in our school. Like we have a lot of bias in there as well. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, uh, in my field of communication, most of our students, um, and this is a gross overgeneralization, of course, but um, communication students in general tend to not be real hip on math, right? And so the math scores on the ACT and SAT have never been an indicator of success. But yet, of course, you know, for years, those were all required as part of a composite score. And I'm just, I'm really happy that, you know, OU, like a lot of other universities have remained test optional, even if we, even as we have progressed through um, the oddities of the pandemic. I, I think the last question I want to ask you is sort of looking at, at a vision towards the future. You, you previously already alluded through the, the Walmart and diapers example that this use of AI and algorithms to, um, solve problems, make us more efficient, help with digital transformation can go a bit too far. But yet at the same time, I'm sure that it's not done yet and it's going to continue to evolve. Where do you see like over the next five years, um, the stuff that you're doing with uh, with Element 451 and then in a broader sense in higher education with artificial intelligence seeping into a lot of things that we're doing, where do you see it going? And what warnings do you have? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, AI is probably one of the best things that, that we have as a, as a society to make us more productive, to, um, you know, cure diseases, to basically do a lot of things. Like there's really absolutely no systems today that don't use some form of machine learning or AI. Uh, it can, you know, essentially we want to make our lives better. And the way we can do that is by um, making less decisions, right? Making us less stressed. So we have, you know, we have computers make decisions for us, or we have computers kind of, you know, predict things for us or make recommendations for us. Um, some of the best AI, like you use it every single day, like the most sophisticated AI is actually uh, the evolution of how, how, like, how do you unlock your phone, right? It used to be you had your flip phone. Great. You open it up. It was very secure, you know, very physical. iPhone came around. It was a digit code, right? And then they moved on to a thumbprint. And there, there was some AI in that, right? They moved over to um, to a face uh, recognition with face recognition with the camera. Well, there's a lot of AI around that. And and we saw how, how badly that was done in the beginning where, you know, um, folks with darker skin, they weren't really, you know, it was like failing quite a bit. Pandemic hit. Well, people were wearing masks, so it still needed to recognize you. So that AI got better and better. So now when we look at that, it's like, well, in order for me to unlock my phone in, in less than like a split millisecond, um, like I'm saving, let's say two or three seconds of me typing in that code versus looking at my face and actually having that right away. So AI is an enabler and it's it kind of cutting down the time that we need to do things and making decisions for us that um, makes our lives better. Now, the, the other side of it can be said around uh, marketing. So a lot of AI is used for influencing our, our decisions as well. And that can be done around marketing. It can be done around, um, you know, trying to influence and, and trying to use data that is not necessarily, we have given consent to you be used. And, and this is where some of the larger players like Apple, they're going really big into privacy and saying, you know what, you, you can't share this data with other um, marketing agents or with other partners, so to speak. So you are in charge of your data. So what we're seeing right now is we're at that chasm where before it was like, okay, I'm getting some value out of you. I'm going to give you my data. And then now you can share that data and do whatever. But everybody's becoming more and more um, kind of understanding on how this data is, is used to actually affect or to actually, you know, uh, trigger you or or change your behavior. To, so so companies are using that against you, so to speak, right? So you want to be more protective of that data and your behaviors and what you're sharing. And all these platforms that are gathering data become more and more knowledgeable about you so they can influence your decisions a, a lot better. And, and so that the future, what we see is more privacy rules and laws coming into effect. And, and we see, the, obviously, with uh, cookies and trackability, like we see this, this kind of wave of um, people owning a lot more of that data and being in charge of who they can give access to and who they can't. So, so we're trying to rein that back in a little bit more. But obviously, that's on the consumer side, right? When we think about 
um, more and more sophistication around um, how data is getting used in me- in medicine, for example, right? Well, without us having all of these massive COVID data, like we weren't, we're going to be able to now build better medicine, better vaccines, better, um, you know, better tooling. So in that case, it's helping society. But in terms of influencing people and the marketing side, it's, it's, it's gone to a place where we are figuring out and governments are trying to figure out um, how do we put laws in place because data gathering is moving so fast and this is moving so fast that a legislature takes a really long time to protect. I mean, obviously we're seeing all that, right? We see GDPR, the rights to be forgotten. We're seeing the CCPA, the California laws being passed. So all of these things are actually um, helping, but ultimately it's going to be up to like the, the companies that are having these massive platforms to be better at um, at collecting that data, guarding it, being good stewards of it, uh, because laws are, are are not going to be moving fast enough. And of course, we have to, as consumers, we have to be very good digitally and understanding uh, from our own literacy, like, how can I go through that? My kids, they're, they're 10 and uh, 10 and uh, 7. And they're learning right now. I'm like, huh, wait a minute. So they're learning, um, you know, in school, like, okay, I'm going to not allow this app to, uh, to be open. I'm not going to allow this one. I'm going to learn. I'm learning phishing. I'm learning all of the security passwords. Like they're learning that in, in first grade, second grade. And I'm like, wow, digital literacy is a, huge, huge part of what we need to do now. And and you can't just, you know, ignore that. Yeah, a, a quick story. So um, we teach courses in internet privacy. And one of the case studies that we use in that course is that many public transit systems so that they can count riders um, will use basically FLIR cameras that can distinguish between people and other objects, right? Because of the heat source. And those cameras, uh, you know, 15 years ago, if you were, if it was pointing at you, you looked like a green blob. But now those cameras are so sophisticated that they look like, you know, basically the x-rays that you see in pictures from TSA security lines, right? And so you can you can tell definitely whether it's a male or a female. Um, you can tell body shape, size, et cetera. And, and that's a privacy issue. And so it's really, I, I mean, the yeah. yeah, the point that you're making is really fascinating. And um, I just, um, I don't know if there's anything that you haven't had a chance to talk about that you wanted to talk about, but your your explanation of all this has been really fascinating because you're not only giving us the expertise of your, of your computer science knowledge, but also its applications in how we do things in education. No, I think I think this has been a great conversation. You know, I like to geek out a lot around <laughs> this stuff. I'm very passionate about it, and yeah. um, and any chance I get to kind of talk through it, um, I think one of the things that we're doing really well, and and we're kind of trying to move forward at Element, um, and as as my comp, you know, as as a system that is actually helping, we're trying to be more user centric or student centric, um, and, and this this notion has. Uh, you know, it's nothing new, right? But it's very, very difficult to educate um, 
current uh, higher education administrators or even users where they think about a process and they think at it, about it from the internal view of, of the school or how they're doing things. But changing their mindset and thinking about, think about the end user, think about that student, think about the learner and how they're seeing the world. And that's kind of the education that we're trying to do in Element because we're, um, we're kind of building um, systems that are, are trying to help them out to move through this process a lot faster. We're gathering their data. You know, we're trying to personalize things a lot more. Um, but, but the view of student centric versus, um, internal driven decision making, it's going to be really, really important in kind of this digital transformation and how schools think about it. Because if you're just taking a process that's just, you know, paper based or internal process and you're just moving it digitally, there's not a lot of value added to that unless you rethink it. And that's what user experience is all about, right? It's like, how do you make that uh, experience better? How can you make that user um, get to what the desired outcome is in as fewer steps as possible? That's where you know design thinking comes into play. How can we get that uh, outcome faster, better, with less friction. And that's what Element is trying to do, right? Use user experience, use AI, um, use all these different techniques that are user-centric, right? In order to get them to outcomes faster, better, with less friction. Very good, artist. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Scott. It's been a great Great, great conversation. Absolutely. Artis Kadu, he is a computer science engineer, but he's also the CEO and founder of Element 451, which will be linked in the text of the podcast. Thanks for listening to Teaching Matters today. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.